Welcome to the latest episode of the Varying Viewpoints podcast series sponsored by the Samuel D. Witt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice at Rutgers University. I'm your host, Bianca Neal, visiting scholar at the Samuel D. Witt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice in the Rutgers Graduate School of Education and the Rutgers Center for Minority Serving Institutions. Today's podcast episode explores the academic and life journeys of Latina professors. In my scholarship, I noticed the gap in guidance for Latinas navigating the academic terrain into the professorate. This was initially prompted by my discovery that Latinas are gravely underrepresented in the professorate, which contrasts the current budding and future growing population of the overall Latinx community. I'm here with our invited guest, Dr. Aida Isela Ramos, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Mary Hardin Baylor. UMHB has been identified as an emerging Hispanic-serving institution by Excelencia in Education, which means that the university's Hispanic enrollment represents over 20% of enrollment at the university and is growing. But let's get to Dr. Ramos. Dr. Ramos, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Really excited. Awesome. Well, let's get started. Uh, I sent you some questions, and let's start... Let's start young. How would you describe your life and academic experiences in elementary, middle school, and high school? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. And I'm so glad you asked it because those things are so formative, right? They're so important. Um, and something that sometimes we don't consider when we think about retention of Latinas and people of color is that it starts there. And and so for me, the, the beginning was one thing that's a context that I, I can't move away from is really growing up on the border. I grew up in El Paso, Texas. And um, if people are not familiar with the state, Texas is huge. <laughs> and so from Austin, the very center of Texas, it's about nine hours west. So it feels like you're in a completely different state in some ways. And what's unique about it is a very binational experience and awareness. So I remember even elementary school, having friends who um, lived in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, who went to school in the United States because their parents decided to just live in Juarez to be near family. Um, and it, it was something that we did regularly. And so that kind of binational awareness and context was always influencing the academic setting and the sense that there was always, there was always needed support for those students and, their, and understanding those students' experiences. Um, and then I had an abuelita who only had a third grade education because she had to take care of family at one point. And so I could never miss school. She, and if I did, like play sick, I did a few times. <laughs> she was like, lay down in bed. You can't watch TV. You can't play. You're sick. And so then I learned that like, she was serious. Going to, going to school was important to her. Um, so in the, those kind of two contexts of my grandmother's emphasis of school and then understanding the border and how it really um, influenced the way I think about life in the sense that I knew that there was other another country, I knew that people existed there, and we interacted regularly, um, was just really unique. And I think while that, there's some a lot of beauty in that, so much beauty in that, it also, I think structured interactions from teachers and students in ways that 
have been challenges and struggles that I don't th I think of a teacher's hearing as they're probably aware of. And part of that had to do with expectations and stereotypes and ideas about who these students are. El Paso is majority Latinx and sometimes that influenced what, in my experience, some teachers thought our abilities were. And so while it was beautiful growing up the border, there was extra challenges of what I think were, what I see now as low expectations um, and some kind of harsh, honestly, just harsh educational environments. Uh, we talk about kind of this like positive interaction with students. Um, it was a lot of fear-based, even in elementary school and middle school. And so it was really in high school that I found more freedom, where I felt as I could um, keep to myself, keep my head down, and try not to internalize messages that I felt like I was getting about my abilities. Um, I was told that, uh, you know, going to four-year university, I don't know about that. Even though I had the grades, um, they were like the legacy of our students from our Go, from our school kind of going to these, usually they have to come from a certain background. And so unfortunately that seemed to color uh, people's responses um, to many Latinos' ab abilities uh, to go forward in higher education. So it's not to say that, that all teachers were bad, not at all, there was many encouraging ones, but we can't shy away from just the historical, contextual, cultural clashes that happened in this border town and, and some of those are rooted in kind of like old stereotypes and ideas about Latinos' abilities. Um, and that, that part was hard. And I think a lot of Latinos, we don't talk about this, but sometimes I wonder, and I need to do more research on it, is like educational trauma, <laughs> right? And having to overcome that and how that kind of stays with us as we try to move forward in our, in our careers, for example, in graduate school. Thank you for sharing. I think that... Um which you mentioned educational trauma or just that struggle for identity um, and, and how you realize that identity internally, but then also externally and the influences uh, that go along with that. Can you let me know what is the moment where you had a, a, a light bulb moment when you realized that you just loved learning? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I, there's so many, but I think, the, the earliest one um, that I remember is I grew up with my abuelitos and my mom. And um, my grandma had a very strict bed schedule, <laughs> but they would allow me to kind of, you know, hop around on the bed or bring my toys to her bedroom before going to bed. And one of the things that we would do together is we would watch PBS documentaries about nature. <laughs> so my abuelita doesn't speak, she understands English pretty good, but she, she mostly speaks Spanish. And I had a Polish-American step-grandpa who um, spoke Spanish with her. And so we, I would like snuggle in between them and we would watch birds <laughs> like, on nature. And then that just opened my mind and heart to what it meant to understand the world outside of my own home. And the way I can put it in from then, I, if I couldn't learn something, it felt like I would perish. Like I needed, not to be all dramatic, but I, I really needed um, to be able to explore and understand the world. Um, and that was necessary and important for me. 
And then from then on, it almost felt like I had to have two faces in some elementary or uh, middle and high school. Well, one that wanted to super nerd out and um, enjoyed history class, let's say, and the other who was trying to maintain this, I don't know, um, I guess the best way to put it is trying to maintain this this peer self, um, I, I mean, just like a student that wouldn't get made fun of for enjoying uh, certain parts of learning that I think were difficult. And it's not to say, I, I, I caution that in that people then can, I don't like it when individuals start to say that, well, see, Latinos don't like, or people of color don't appreciate learning or there's peers that push against it. it um, well, that can be true most of the time. I think it was kind of a lack of finding my people or a group of people that I felt like understood me. So I many times hid my aha moments and kept mm. them to myself because uh, I felt like it was really hard to share. Um, and uh, so, yeah, nature documentaries and my family just seeing my interests and saying, you like dinosaurs? Eh, okay, we'll buy you a dinosaur book. Why not? You know, uh, kind of uh, really pushing even against gender boundaries with likes and interests that my family just embraced. That is awesome. It sounds like your grandmother was very formative uh, in your learning, your development. That's such a blessing to be able to have uh, extended family. And really, it's really just family, period, um, to be part of that experience growing up. What was it that prompted you to go to college? How did that come about? Mm -hmm. Or was that always That's in the plan? Oh, no, that wasn't always in the plan. I had no idea what college was. I was terrified. I remember I remember sitting in my room and thinking four years at a place, I can't do it. There's no way. Um, again, this is despite uh, maybe doing okay. I mean, I, I didn't always have, and I think this is something we need to talk about too, is my educational experience wasn't always perfect. And I think we think of, oh, these are the Latinas who got their PhDs are the ones who were like A students from the beginning. I was not. I failed third grade. Um, I had to take summer school um, in third grade. Um, and I remember that really being hard to deal with as a, as a, as a child. And then later recognizing that if I, once I, I take a while <laughs> and then once I get it, um, I'll be okay. So it was, and so I mentioned how sometimes I would hide my aha moments from peers because I was kind of scared of being really ridiculed. But at the same time, the peer influence for going to college had to be the most significant. So seeing people around me whose parents had gone to college, and if I'm, if I'm honest, it was mostly my white friends, right? Um, some of my upper class students, uh, peers of color, but most of them had not gone, their parents had not gone to college. So I had a few white friends who I, who, who weren't first generation and who in some ways lended, um, some of that cultural social capital and also the cultural social capital that was given to us just um, as resources in the school. So it was kind of this like um, good and bad that was always there. And so seeing other people apply and talk about college, it made me feel less fearful about it. Um, and that's why I'm always so over like joyed when I walk into a high school and I see like, um, different types of signs about college and flags of different universities. I think that would have 
um, really helped me kind of get over that hump a lot more. So seeing other people go to school, and I'll never forget, I had another friend who was also a woman of color. And uh, she's like, Aida, are you going to college? And I said, you know what, Carolyn? I think I am. And she's like, okay, I'm going to too. I'm like, okay, cool. We'll do it together. <laughs> and so like we we kind of relied on each other. And I I was on a basketball team. And, and I think that was an important group of people that through that interaction and connection, we were able to kind of mimic each other's decisions. Um, it didn't, I mean, I still didn't know what I was doing, uh, but that really is what influenced me to push back, push through the fear of not being able to make it and go ahead and apply. I love it. That's true. I, I played sports as well. And I feel like that always helps with the mindset because when you play sports, you know, you're playing back-to-back games. And mm-hmm. if you win one and you lose one and you lose one and you win one, you know, it's just about you can keep going. You have another game coming up. And so that's really helpful in developing that mindset um, that that a no is not a rejection. A no is like, all right, I got to go again and I got to try again. That is such a great connection. I never put that. It was a tough, I mean, it's tough, right, to play um, sports it's very competitive so you got kind of used to falling literally <laughs> and getting back up and, yeah who uh, who are the people that influenced your academic journey once you were in college how did you mm. uh, discover your major for instance oh that's an interesting story yes um well I wanted to be a veterinarian so <laughs> I initially saw commercials on animal planet for like I think it was like Dale Vista Institute of uh, Technical. And I was like, okay, I can't do four-year college, but maybe I can do that. Um, but then I uh, kind of did research where I could and found an agricultural school that had a vet school. I didn't understand how grad school worked. So I was like, oh, if I do that, I'll have to spend eight years in this one place if I do both. Um, but so I went and did a biomedical science major um, but then took a sociology class um, with a woman of color who had my background. And um, actually, women of color have been so prominent. that That's who the people who really influenced my academic journey in college was just seeing them. I went to a majority um, white serving institution at the time. It's really changed since then. It was Texas A&M University. Many good experiences, but also extremely difficult. So different from my border town, 12 hours east. Very different in every form from the the tierra, from the land to the people. And so seeing them um, just like, the best way of saying it is it like lit my heart on fire. Like seeing them, I was like, oh, okay, it's possible. It like shattered all these ideas about what I thought we could do or what I could do. Um, and so it was the outreach of these women and, um, another woman who wasn't a woman of color, but she was a first generation, uh, woman who grew up, you know, very poor and low income. And so that would be, uh, Dr. Jamie Filoteo, uh, Dr. Zeluna Valdez and Dr. Carol Albright, um, three women who said, Hey, you know, some of the things you write about or talk about in class seem really sociological. <laughs> they reached out. Yes. We're, we're pumping our fists right now. And so um, she's like, you know, have you thought about graduate school or what that means? Um, and, and so I was really wrestled with feeling like I would somehow be a failure if I didn't finish biomedical science. 
uh, and the truth is those have been out, really isolating classes and, and being in them too have show, showed me so much uh, my lack of preparation. Um, and I had to work, like, it felt like triple the amount to, to catch up to some of my peers. And uh, even in my sociology classes, I felt that way, just learning how to do college. And um, they started to guide me. They started to give me research experience. And I came to the decision that it felt like sociology really spoke directly to the experiences that I was noticing. Um, the fact that my roommate, who's great, uh, her name was Komei Wen, um, was from Houston and that her high school got all fives on their bio AP exam. We were told that was impossible in high school. And so I was like, okay, um, who studies this? <laughs> who studies why one high school gets all five on their APs and another one like just hopes that that happens? And uh, sociology is what ultimately spoke to me and these women reaching out and uh, telling me that I could do it was so integral. That's so, that's so important. I've, I've been studying it and it seems like really a multi-tiered um, mentorship model works really well. And even mm. if it's formal or informal in your case, where these three mm. women just supported you and said, there's something about you that's standing out and we want to highlight it. And then just that encouragement and confidence to say, oh, I can do this. What was the pivotal point at which you decided to go from graduating from college to getting a doctorate? Really good question. And um, yeah, your research, I'm just, as you're talking, it is amazing how important and applicable your research is as I'm hearing this and as I talk about it. And I think the moment was I was sitting on the steps of where my sociology of Mexican-Americans class was with Dr. Fugodale. And we were sitting on steps, I remember. And I said, you know, I think I'm going to make this change. And she's like, well... I told her what I was interested. I was interested in policy. I was interested in education. And she said, I think a PhD is something that's calling to you. And so we sat down and started to map out how that would happen. And one of the first things she told me was, you know, an REU experience. I know a research uh, experience for undergraduate. And, and then she's like, that's going to help with your graduate applications. Um, and so we started to kind of plan and strategize how to find those. And I feel like I stumbled through every step of that process. Sometimes I think, how did I make it? But I did. Um, and one of the things that I think is important about that REU process was it really gave me a taste for what that would feel like. And it was trial by fire. It was at UC Berkeley and it was hard. <laughs> um, I loved it, but I, I quickly started to learn that these are kind of the norms and expectations, but also is this the life that I want to be invested in? And I think that's a really good question. Um, and, I, and I actually think if I had decided, no, I don't want to do this, that would have been totally fine. Um, so it was really that moment of being told by Dr. Filofel, Dr. Valdez, and Dr. Albrecht, you should go to grad school. And then knowing that they believed in me, and then knowing that the PhD would give me the training and skills needed to advocate for my community, although academia pushes back against that sometimes, um, is I kind of stubbornly pushed forward with that. That's awesome. I love your, your rigor, your desire to keep pushing forward. And I know um, that your, your journey is not, 
it's not a, a, a journey that doesn't have to, that has to be kept hidden or in secret. Kind of like when you said you hid your aha mm -hmm. moments. So I'm so thankful that you are sharing this because I feel like there are so many others who need to hear these stories. Um, well, so as you mentioned stumbling, cause I feel like that is one aspect of some journeys, right? Is just not knowing um, and thankfully finding people to provide that support. What was it that, that solidified your desire to become a professor? So mm -hmm. did you decide, did you have other options? Did you, after you graduated, um, did you, mm. did you know that you wanted to do that? Cause I know you've also spent some other, it's not time as a professor, but also time as um, a professional administrative professional in higher education. Yes. Yes. Well, I had no idea that was coming. Um, that was, <laughs> but I realized that's such a, later on it ended up blending my interest. So I honestly didn't quite know what I wanted to do in a very explicit manner. Like I didn't know that, oh, I want to, you know, write some research articles and do ethnography and do some analysis, quantitative. I didn't know that yet. Um, I just knew, yes, I just knew that knowing this information like, so I mentioned, okay, so if I could step back, um, you mentioned that I stumble sometimes. I feel like I was stumbling constantly, <laughs> like, like always stumbling forward, like basketball metaphorically, um, falling on my knee pads and, and would just kind of get back up. And when I mentioned that trial by fire at UC Berkeley, even though it was some of the hardest learning about what graduate school and getting a professor it would be like, it also, it was the most like kind of when I mentioned those aha moments or the moments you love learning, it was that times a thousand, right? Being on the campus, the air being thick, full of curiosity about everything, um, not just in my field, that I thought, I cannot leave this, like this higher ed world, this asking questions, this like on the edge of of talking about different important subjects. Um, I I want to be in that. Something about that is feels like it's where I belong in my place. And so that's when I figured that, okay, this means that a career as a professor is where I can stay working in this intellectually stimulating world. Um, and so that's what made me decide to do it. I also think, and I don't know if other Latinas who are hearing this or people of color, is was a little bit of a naiveness about what tenure and other things would be like, right? And I feel as though if I if I would if I had if I would have internalized those messages early on, I don't know if I would have moved forward because I would have doubted myself. Um, so a part of it was again this kind of young <laughs> naiveness that was part of it, but also I think you know what that's part of our journeys and it's part of how I, I grew. Um, and in the end, those those challenges ended up being fine. Um, and so from, so I really wanted to be like the avocation, the advocate. And I learned really quick that academia, particularly at a top uh, institution in your field, and it has, you know, very high standards, which is good, but also the kind of, depending on your field and when you go to, this kind of advocacy mindset can be seen as detracting from the scholarly world. And so that was a difficult thing to start maneuvering. 
Um, and I think everyone feels this. I loved my graduate school. I went to the University of Texas at Austin. I, uh, another beautiful uh, moment that I that was great in my life. I look about it fondly. But I think at that moment, I started to realize, oh, there's tension in cultural norms, values, and beliefs about expectations. And there's not a lot of people here who understand the first generation experience, especially not the Latinx experience from the border. And I had to start uh, building confidence that took in my journey. Um, uh, that that confidence that that was built on my experience and saw them as valid and good. And I'm so dig I, into that. Yes, I'm please. Dig into that. How please. did you build that confidence? Yes. It, well, I, if I'm honest, at the beginning, and I think one of your questions was going to be about like advice to Latinos, and this might kind of intersect with that. So I might sound repetitive, but one of those things was not giving in to completely being swallowed by academia's culture that has been so devoid of my of of who I am as this border kid who um, you know is a is the daughter of Mexican immigrants who was wrestling with her indigenous identity and what that meant. Um, I, I feel like if, if you're not careful, depending on who your mentors are and who watches you, they you will slowly start to, in some ways, remove your unique, your uniqueness because it is not seen that much in academia. And in some ways, it's seen as, you know, um, as a, as a, not just a disadvantage, but like as a marker of, your inability to do well. And I know that sounds so harsh, but it's true. <laughs> I, I, I have been told about first generation students being needy, um, you know, all this language about not being deserving of being in these spaces. And so I had to really fight against that knowledge and remember that I did. And part of that was calling my grandmother and while she's folding clothes, I say, yeah, this like, you know, I got told about this and maybe I don't fit up here. And then, you know, um, my grandma didn't cuss around me, but when I got to grad school, she started cussing. <laughs> and so she would say things like, oh, Aida, don't listen to them. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> like, you belong there, right? And so hearing that was helpful. Um, and it was funny uh, to hear an abuelita, you know, throw out a cuss word once in a while. And also just remembering that, um, that actually my my background brought all these really, and not just mine, other people of color that were there, I noticed they brought all these insights into some research questions that we would not have asked otherwise, and that would have left a lot of blank um, spaces and gaps that would have made the research not as good. And so it took a long time to get there, but I slowly saw, oh, without all of these different diverse voices, the research is not as good. Oh my gosh, I'm totally needed here. And so is everyone else. And, and it was that moment that helped me finally position myself um, to to feel like I belong. I think we all, I still struggle with that. And I think other people do too. Um, and I know I hear students tell me that they do. Uh, but that was part of the journey is, yeah. What is the point where you felt, and it may have been when you said, you said that being at UT, we're both UT alum, but what, what did it, what was the it's, point where you felt like, okay, I'm doing this. It's like you felt a, a moment of success. So whether that was college or 
master, doctorate, professor? Like, what was that moment where you felt, I'm successful now? Mm. Oh, wow. That's a good question. Well, maybe I didn't at that moment feel I'm successful now, but I felt motivated, on fire, encouraged to keep going to be successful at that moment was looking and seeing CIMAS, the Center for Mexican-American Studies, and the Cesar Chavez uh, monument had just been put out. And seeing him there as I walked towards the tower, which is a big tower uh, on campus at UT Austin, and, um, and then feeling, all right, I feel as though what he did for us and for many others, I need to honor that. And I think it's when I finished and um, got to take a picture next to that, that I felt, okay, all right, I got this. And I have to get this because so many bruised hands and feet, right? And, and, and these people who gave their bodies to give us equality, not just in the Latino community, but black and Asian and indigenous peoples, I, I have to keep carrying on for them. And that was important to me. You know, it's interesting that I've been having a similar conversation with myself, which mm -hmm. is changing the narrative from can I to I have to. Mm -hmm. You know, realizing mm. like, well, I don't know, can I, can I, asking, especially mm. with, you know, in academia and, and asking permission and, and, that, and there's like, it's like a, 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 not, it's not, you can't see the permission being asked, you know, but it's like this broken um, mm. system and, you know, it's like, well, I'm not supposed to be asking permission, I'm supposed to be contributing, I'm supposed mm. to be participating um, and so instead of saying, can I do this? Can I do that? Do I have this? Do I have that? Shifting that narrative to, I have to do this. I am the representative. I am one of the people um, that has been, is participating in this circle and I have to contribute um, and not just wait for somebody else to uh, invite me in um, mm. to participate. Because like you mentioned, I think what you shared especially is your voice is so important and your experience is so important in your um, journey and what you bring to the table, um, your thoughts, your creativity, your experiences um, have to be brought into the space so that there are diverse voices, so that there is an increase in academic, uh, you know, knowledge and um, just a new narrative. Mm, yep, yep. Um well, yeah, that's powerful and so helpful to hear. You know that, Mika, um, and I, I really appreciate it because it's it, me to keep reminding myself that um, because our voices are so small, as you mentioned at the beginning here, but I don't mean small as in that we're we're not loud. I mean as a, as if we don't have something important to say. I mean is that there's not many of us, right? And so sometimes it feels like you're in an alternate universe. I don't know if you feel this sometimes where you go home and your, under, your experiences and understandings are, are kind of shared. And then suddenly you're academia and, and you're like a fish out of water and people are like, what are you, what do you do? <laughs> um, and so it's, and it, I think it's also pushing, um, what I found too, it's research wise, pushing boundaries, the trusting your gut and your instinct when research about your communities or what other people have said might, you know, have some res might, 
resonate a bit, but if there's something that you've noticed and you've seen to trust that, because what I did at the beginning was doubt all of it. And what it did, it just made me a nervous mess. And I, and it was really hard to be confident when I felt as though everything I knew, I kind of was gaslighting myself, right? That everything I knew um, wasn't good to contribute. But once I embraced that experience, I realized my journey helps me see things in research or ask questions that I wouldn't have otherwise, like everyone, all of us bring that. And so to just embrace it, because they all, they do it all the time. Um, people who are kind of used to this world. So once I realized that that is valuable, even if the world says, you know, having a grandmother with third grade education who grew up, you know, in rural Durango, Mexico is not as impressive, quote unquote, I realized for me, it was the most impressive, beautiful thing ever. <laughs> and so that if I could embrace that and push against narratives, and that's what's hard when you go into grad school is you're around a lot of people who, um, who are wonderful, but who've also are really removed from maybe your life experiences. And that means that you might start to question and think yours are not in, good enough, but they're actually so valuable and enriching. And so, yeah, so it feels like once I really embraced it, that, all right, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm talking about. I have something to say. That changed a lot of kind of my research trajectory and how, and, and just, in, just in general, my peace um, in being in, in this world. You touched about upon something that I've, I have experienced as well. When mm. you are reading material or research about your community, but it doesn't resonate with you because it's not a reality. And, and it's very challenging to, 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 I, it's really hard to, to, um, I don't know. I don't even have the right word just to mm -hmm. wrestle with that, with that yes. that has been written about you or your people and community and, and then trying to figure out your voice and identity in it. And so you brought up a really great, um, topic in regards to like how to I guess maneuver or navigate through that situation um mm -hmm. and realize that again you're there on purpose our voices mm -hmm. are needed and we're there on purpose what keeps mm -hmm. you motivated what is your why yeah that's good and I think one of my biggest whys is related to what you said and by the way it's very healing to kind of hear some of the things that you, you that are resonating with you and that I'm not the only one that has felt that way. And my big why has really been racialization process of Latinx and its complexity. And I think what has been happening is because our population has grown um, and because in terms of racial identity is so complex, you know, we're black, where we can have people identify as white, you know, um, truth is I think most of us are indigenous and don't talk about it, uh, right? Um, and Asian as well, um, and all other kinds of representations, because that identity is so complex, I've noticed that there has been this, in research, this tendency to homogenize us. And, and, and all of us, we, and I mean, to be frank too, I had to learn about different Latinx's experiences as well. Like I had to kind of decolonize and, and, and see that there's um, different experiences. But what, kind of stepping into a field that had been writing about us because we're so important and growing about our families, about our religious views, um, about our educational journeys. 
and, and because these are outsiders and that's okay, they, they're saying, I mean, they're the groundwork, right? Before there was a lot of Latinx in the field. Um, it's very strange to read things that people are writing about you when they're outsiders and seem to get a few things a little off where there's some stereotypes that kind of like slowly um, come in. And so my, my current why is thinking about like what pushes Latinx to move into different identities. And this is kind of building off some of Julie Dowling's work, who's also Latinx UT alum. Um, she wrote a book called Mixing Americans and the Questions of Race, it's really important. And what I've been thinking about is how are our Latinx faith communities playing a role in how Latinx racialize themselves and how those churches racialize them? And then how does that move them into different types of ideologies? Like, in other words, does church attendance kind of explain why Zapata County in South Texas went for Trump? I don't know. I don't have the exact data in there. But what I'm finding in my ethnography is that churches don't racialize um, uniformly. And we kind of, sometimes how Latinx churches are talked about in theology is that, you know, they're all the same. They're all a fiesta, which is, you know, so problematic anyways. Um, and while I appreciate those voices, I think what I'm finding is that there's there's a really significant process happening that I, I think has been ignored. And that is the ways in which either a colorblind ideology, which I call like religious colorblindness, um, starts to permeate Latinx ideas about themselves. And because faith and religion is so close and so personal, um, you know, they start to get messages. And, and you know, so, and they're not just, you know, um, people who are just taking in messages without any kind of assessment of them. I'm not saying that they're just, you know, actors that are neutral, but what they're getting is messages about embracing in many ways, kind of a ideologies that push down their identity. Um, and they feel it's really important because it's coming through the lens and the language of religion and, and faith. And then there's others who are gaining an awareness about who they are as Latinx, their identity, their value, through those same, through those same mechanisms, through religion and faith. So right now, my I think where I feel is us trying to understand racialization um, of Latinx and and how it happens uh, is kind of my my big why at the moment. And as we're about to close this podcast, you just opened a new can of uh, <laughs> knowledge, <Yay. laughs> uh, but I think that's important because basically. In summation, what you're saying is it's complex. We are complex. Our experiences are complex. We're not homogeneous. We're not all the same. Um, interestingly enough, I don't know how the statistics work in that we're impacted similarly, um, but but we are mm. very different. Mm. And I think mm. that's what really um, needs to also be brought to the forefront of this conversation is that we're not all the same. We have different experiences, whether we're first generation, whether we've been here for three generations, whether we're Mexican, whether we're Cuban, whether we're Honduran, whether we're, you know, we have all these different yes. um, experiences, whether you grew up in California, whether you grew up in New York, whether you grew up um, in, in Wisconsin. 
we all face yes. these uh, experiences differently. Yes, I'm shaking my head like vigorously up and down. Yes, I think that's the, it might seem like so obvious when people hear this, but I, what I have seen in research, and it sounds like you've seen it too, is that fact is, is really not acknowledged. And part of it is because uh, the lack of representation of all these different groups, but also data sets, at least in my field, quantitative data sets are not good at measuring Latino ethnic identity and its complexity. And even, I mean, I have Black colleagues who talk about that as well, like the fact that Black identity is not homogenous either. So there's a need to make this um, more sophisticated and complex. And I think us being in the academy helps push the academy to start addressing that. Yeah, I do want to shout out uh, Dr. Nancy Raquel Mirabal. Um, she's from, um, she's she has a lot of work to add to this conversation and you're shaking your head so you may have heard of her, um, but you know, we've had this conversation and, and I just love what she contributes as well. Uh, being a Cuban, uh, Cuban American, but then also I'm studying African American, the African experience in Cuba, and um, I just—it's amazing to see how we we are a, a complex yet rich, you know, rich in in knowledge, rich in relationship, um, people and community. I wanted to say before we uh, wrap up, um, thank you so much for your wisdom. Thank you so much for your voice. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, continue to do what you're doing. Um, do you have any last uh, words of wisdom, mm. advice, thoughts for mm. uh, those who are currently uh, either mm. they're getting their doctorate right now or they're considering being a professor? Oh, well, first, thank you. Thank you for this work. Thank you for letting us voice this um, and kind of make this our reality valid. Um, thank you. Well, um, I think one of the the big things is to not give in to hiding yourself and to not give in into the hyper-competitiveness that can sometimes uh, wrap the experience of grad school and academia to keep the community in mind and to help other people um, to not seek your own um, success only, that I think that can only lead to, to destruction and pain. And I think uh, if we're not careful, we can start being influenced by what feels like, you know, kind of bad values. Um, not to say that competition is always bad, but the kind of seeking your own um, success first over other people can lead to, to hurting others. So uh, I think pushing it against that urge um, is important. And second, um, you belong, you're needed, and you deserve where you're at, where you're, where you have become. You're not just a quote-unquote diversity hire or just a diversity admit. Um, you, you succeeded and bring a lot to the table, and they are lucky, and you're a gift to the place that you're at. And the third, y'all, mental health is real. Get the mental health that you need. Uh, without, I think without, I, one something I didn't mention, grad school, it was the mental health support and people who understood my journey, maybe not perfectly, but understood what it meant to go through grad school um, that I recognize having, understanding how to do healthy boundaries, how to work through um, challenges, um, that that mental health piece is so integral. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you all for tuning in to Varying Viewpoints podcast series sponsored by the Samuel D. Witt Proxer Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice at Rutgers University. I also want to thank Dr. Mary Beth Gaspin, Randy Jones, and Priscilla Pierre who made this experience wonderful. And again, thank you to our special host, Dr. Aida Isela Ramos. <laughs>